All right, let's open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Or you can just look on the back of your bulletin, and we got a nice long passage in there for us. All right, a while back, I was accused by my wife of dominating our movie viewing. Uh, When we would go to the show, when we'd rent a DVD or we would purchase a DVD, she seemed to be fully convinced that all we purchased were action movies and good guy versus bad guy movies and these global epic movies and these historical war movies. And she says, that's all we do. And we never go see and we never rent and we never buy meaningful, purposeful, relational stories. And I looked at her and I said, uh-uh. And she raised one eyebrow and then proceeded to walk over to a cabinet that held our TV and our family DVD collection and opened it. And sure enough, there were historical war movies, there were action movies, there were good guy versus bad guy movies, there were global epic movies, and not one meaningful relational movie. So, this was a setback. I had to act quickly. I said, honey, but there's relationships in these movies. You remember. Remember Aragon and Arwen? Huh? Relationship? And and you remember William Wallace, his wife? You remember his wife? Before she got killed? (laughs) At the beginning of the movie and all the good stuff began. Ladies. This passage is for you. This passage is a loyal love story. This passage actually pushes into your soul what you already know already and that you are driven and shaped by meaningful relationships. This passage actually echoes in your desire and even your preferences to hear relational stories, whether it be in a book or a movie. In other words, the deepest stuff that, that moves your soul on relational stuff is packed into this passage. And men, for you, this passage will cause you to reread it and reread it again and again. And as you read it, what it will do is it will actually stir within you deeper desires than you had ever known and ever thought you as a male, whatever have. It will actually stir within you a greater desire to dig even deeper into this text. It will impact you and move you and shape you and transform you in ways you never thought about. This is an incredible passage. It is the focal point of all creation. And it's here to actually bring you alive to a loyal love story. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to start at verse 4 to 4, and maybe we'll read the whole thing. Let's just see what happens. Why don't we read together, if you remember and I remember, let's read verse 15 and 16 and 17, okay? So 15, 16, and 17, let's read together. Now, these are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, this is the situation. This is what was happening when he did this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work 
the ground. Now I'm going to give you the literal translation here. And a rain cloud began to rise up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and is good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And the name of the first was Pishon. And this is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havala, and where there was gold. And the gold of that land is good. And Bedellum and oxen stone were there. And the name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And on the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Now, together, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father, his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. O Lord, we acknowledge that we are dust, and we acknowledge that our hearts are like dust. We acknowledge that we quickly run out of water. And for those of us that know you, we know that our spiritual reserves and our spiritual water runs out each week, each day, and needs, it needs you. We need to be filled by you. We need you to give us life. We need you to flood our hearts with living water. And Lord, for those that do not know you, may you... Make them aware of their thirst. Make them aware that we do live in a dusty, dry, and weary land where there is no water, outside or inside of us. And, O Lord, show yourself to all of us to be the fountain of living water this morning, pouring forth the riches of your glory and grace in this text. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Genesis 2, 4 through 25 is zooming in on the creation story. It's zooming in. It's like a telephoto lens. It's, it's zooming in on the creation story to make you take a closer look at something to actually give you the point of the whole creation narrative. So it's zooming in to give you a close look 
at what the whole story is all about and what it wants you to see. So there's a, a real intent and there's a real purpose in the story. Now, I want you to watch how it's zooming in just so you can track with me. You know, I'm not making this up. And I'll explain why in a second. Remember on days three and six. Remember what happened on days three and six. Three and six was different from the other days because two created acts happened on day three, happened on day six. Well, what does that do? That's zooming you in. All the other days had one created act. Three and six, two created acts. Well, what was happening? Well, remember in each first three days, you have a created kingdom. And then you have the created kings of those kingdoms on days four, five, and six. Well, on day three, the created kingdoms were... Dry land and vegetation. Six, land animals, and then the king that rules over all the earth, man. So we're zooming in to that day, the sixth day in 2, 4 through 25, okay? Also, I want you to look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. This is how it begins. These are the generations of. These are the generations of. Literally, this is the family history of. It's zooming in. Not on the origin of the history of heaven and earth, but what that means is what flows out of or the history of the heavens and the earth. What Genesis does is it has ten generations of for the whole whole, uh, book of Genesis. This is the first one. If you go to 5-1, I think... If you go to 5-1, if you go to 6-9, you'll see this is the generation of. This is a generation of. There are 10 of those throughout Genesis. That's how the book's organized. That's how Moses organized the book. His point is not, at this point, to give us the origin of the heavens and the earth. He did that in chapter 1. The point now is to give what comes out of the heavens and the earth. The history, the generations of. This is the first one. You know what that means? Genesis 1 is an introduction to Genesis. This is where the book really begins. We're zooming in. This is the focal point, the starting point, really, of Genesis. Not the original creation story. Isn't that interesting? This is the high point. This is where it wants you to take a closer look. Not, how did God do all this? Did he do it in a young earth, an old earth? Okay. Now, look at the word reversal in verse 4. Notice in verse 4, first it says this is the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then right in the same verse, what does it do? Earth to heaven. This is a very subtle shift in perspective. We just zoomed in in chapter 1 into the invisible heavens where we saw a king on his throne calling out nothing life. Now we're zooming in on earth. Okay, we're zooming in. We're zooming in. Now, one last thing. Look at Lord God. The word Lord God in verse 4 and 5, it saturates this whole text. This is the first time it's used. What's happening is we're going from God, the Creator King, to zooming in on Lord God. Now, that's Yahweh. This is God's covenant name. Now, remember, this book is written originally, or is inscripturated originally, to the, the newly exiled Israelites on their way to the Promised Land. And Moses is the author of these first five books of the Bible. So he's given this book, and what's happening here is he's giving God's covenant name. What's zooming in here? It's becoming intensely relational. It's becoming intensely intimate and personal. God has shifted from the great creator king, and now we're zooming in on him having an actual binding relationship with his people. A relationship 
by which he circles his happiness around yours or creations. In other words, what's happening here is this. If my people are not happy, I'm not happy. If my people are not flourishing, I don't flourish. He circled the wagons around his creatures. Lord God made, Lord God fashioned, Lord God binding, intimate, deeply personal stuff. In other words, a love story. All right? Now, I have to hit pause here just for a second. And the reason why I have to hit pause here is that some of you are taking courses from professors or will take courses from professors or you've read in a book and it's jolted you, it's startled you, or you actually believe this stuff now. And this is what I mean. You're hearing, you're reading, it's in your classrooms, it's in books, and you might personally believe that Genesis 2, 4 through 25, is contradicting Genesis 1. I know that's a common thought out there today. Okay? So we just need to hit time out, and I just want to respond to that briefly. Here's the first thing. First, we know Genesis 2, 4 through 25 is giving us a zoomed-in perspective, not a second creation account. We just saw that. So there's not one creation account in Genesis 1, and now a competing or inherently contradictory creation account in Genesis 2. That's not happening. The second thing is I want to say is this, is that that assertion that it is a contradiction has an inherent solid belief in it. In other words, the solid belief is God or the Bible must do what we want it to do. You know what I mean? Here's what I mean. Specifically, what we want the Bible to do at this point is to arrange its history around a timeline or around sequential order or chronological order. That's what we want it to do. That's what good 21st century modern Western cultural historiographers want to do. Everything in history today is timelines and charts and data and calendars. It's this raw abstract data. You know, you go to any classroom, what do you got? Timelines. And this date, and what do you do in history? What do you do? Memorize people, places, significant events. The ancient Near East didn't organize its history around timelines and data and chronology and sequential order and dates. It organized its history around topics, ideas, historical narrative, theology. See the difference? So the first response is this. It's very unreasonable to believe that the Bible must do what you want it to do And to say that it's got to do what a Western European cultural historical person wants it to do. And say, I don't care what the ancient Near East did. I don't care that Moses preferred to organize it around a divine point and a divine purpose that's meant to impact the reader. And we want to say this way of doing it's better. And also, here's my other response. It's one thing to say. It's one thing to say that organizing history around chronology and sequential order is one of the ways of doing history. Are we beeping? Or am I beeping? It's another thing to say it's the only way to organize history.
That's just not true. The ancient Near East organized history around ideas, story, points. They didn't have in their minds graphs and charts and timelines. Okay? So these are two different ways. All right. Now, let's get back to the text. Are you ready? All right. The organizing point of history here, real history happening here. Moses is organizing it. God's inspiring it. The point of this whole story is to zoom in on a love story. And here's the point. God loyally loves his people. That's the point of the text. Now, I know right now for many of you this morning, the moment I say God loyally loves his people, you doubt the words before I finish them. When I say God loyally loves his people or God loyally loves you, those words fall to the ground. You believe that God's disappointed with you. Or actually you believe that that God has disappointed you. That God has let you down. And those words don't mean anything to you right now. And then there are others of us that you know you've let God down. And so God loving his people is very hard because deep in your gut you know that I've let him down and he's disappointed with me. And perhaps he's even angry with me. In other words, you haven't held your life together in that certain situation like you should have. You should have been a better witness in that certain situation than you were. Your difficulties in life are starting to depress you and get you down. And then, of course, there's that nagging sin that you continue to do over and over again. And so God is disappointed in you. And then there's others of us, though, when we hear that God loyally loves his people, it never leaves the page. In other words, you've heard that God loyally loved you your whole life. You've been to church your whole life. Everybody in America, mostly down in the southern part, the Bible Belt, we've grown up going to church. When I was up in New England, we were seeing the first generations of children who were coming from children that didn't go to church. Now, that's fairly new to this area. It's becoming more rampant throughout the United States, but in New England and the West Coast, that's, that's normal. We're now in fourth Fifth generations of people that don't go to church. Their parents didn't go to church. Whose grandparents didn't go to church. Whose great-grandparents didn't go to church. But here, most of us probably have grandparents that went to church, if not parents that went to church, and we grew up going to church. You've heard God loved you your whole life. But it stays on the page of the Bible. It's never leapt off the page into your heart. It stays in Sunday school, and it hasn't entered into your marriage. It's a, it's a wonderful idea, but it, it hasn't become the stuff that actually keeps you going when you fail and when you're rejected. And when life doesn't turn out the way you thought it would turn out. Now, that's a whole different way of seeing God loyally loves his people and loves you. So what are we going to do? I mean, brothers and sisters, how do you feel God's love? How do you right now know in your heart 
So much so that it shapes it, so much so that it changes it, so much so that it drives you, that he loves you. How do you get that? We've got to zoom in on this passage, okay? So perhaps what I want us to see is that everything in this passage is like the song says, literally walking on sunshine. You are walking on sunshine every step you take in the passage. And the question is, are you walking on that sunshine? How do you know if you do? How do you know if you don't? Let's zoom in a little bit. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on this passage. And we're going to take in the whole scene. And we're going to hope and pray that the Lord actually begins to zoom in his love on you. But at the end, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. At the end, I'm going to take you to a dead end. I'm sorry I have to do that. But we're going to get so excited looking at this passage, and then we're going to run to a dead end, and you're going to look at me like, why did you take me here? And then maybe, just maybe, that's where God gets you. Okay? You ready? All right. Let's zoom in. Look at verse 7. Look at how God made man. Look at the word form. This is a word that's literally used for artists and sculptors in the ancient Near East. Artists and sculptors. It's also a word that's used in Job to describe how God makes all his humans. So don't get put off and just start distancing yourself from this passage as if this is how he did it with Adam. This is not how he does it with me. Adam was done this way. I'm not made this way. No. That's the same exact word used for human beings created throughout the whole scriptures. God literally, the artist, the sculptor, reaches into the clay and the soil that he just made and fashions you, sculpts you. It is intentional. It's deliberate. It's intensely personal. This is not, oh, I hope, or it's not even... It's not even like he did the other parts of creation. This part, he got his hands dirty and made you, sculpted you very personally. I want you to look at the word Lord God. Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. I mean, this is phenomenal stuff. I mean, what you should be reading is you've read now chapter 1 and you, you get to this point. He's made the creatures. He's made all the other animals. They all got breathing. They're living. But no mention of God coming up to them, getting so close to them that he breathes out and that breath comes into the human creature and is the stuff that keeps him alive. In other words, God's breath, God's life sustains your life right now. Do you see how intensely deliberate and personal this is? He gets close enough to you to breathe on you. And he makes you. And he instills you. And notice what happens. The soul comes alive when that happens. So we got the immediate presence of God forming Adam and forming every human, sculpting them by the work of his hands, breathing life into our soul, Possibly you see now that God's loyally loving you. 
Possibly. Let's keep going, though. It might not happen. Look at verses 8 through 14 now. This is the place that God makes for Adam. So first we see how he makes Adam, how he makes his people. Now we look at the place that he makes. Look at the word Eden. That literally means in, in the ancient Near East, pleasure, delight. It literally means pleasure ground. You're walking on sunshine. Every step you take, yeah, pleasure. Everywhere you look, jolting pleasure. I mean, this is loaded stuff. And I want you to see, though, to Eden, though it's pictured here, it's propositionally said in Ezekiel to be a mountain. A mountain that represents heaven. And what you have at Eden is the collision or the union of heaven and earth on a mountain. It's at the center of creation. Now, if you just kind of fast forward and pretend, pretend you didn't read this, and then you just kind of pretend that there are other chapters in the Bible, and you start seeing, you know, pretty significant stuff happens on mountains in the Bible. In fact, when Jesus transfigured into glory, it was on a mountain. Everyone goes to a mountain to meet with God in the Bible. Eden is a mountain. And it's, it's in the east where the sun rises. Do you know in the ancient Near Eastern world, the sun or the rising of the sun in the east was the place and the origin and the source of light and life. So much so that on the Nile, the ancient Near Eastern Egyptians put all the gods of the living on the east bank where light and life rise. And they put their pyramids... Their tombs, their dead, and the dead gods on the West Bank. Incredible pictures here. So we got Eden and a mountain. And then we got it's in the east, light and life. And then we keep moving, and we got this garden. And the garden in here is pictured as this great banquet table. What's it pictured as? It's this bountiful spread, satisfying spread, a A table of pleasure, it's pleasing and delightful to the eyes. It's good to the eyes and it's good to the heart and it's good to every sense and every part of the human in that banquet table. God spreads out this huge banquet table and he says, eat. Eat. Enjoy it all. And in fact, the degree to which you enjoy what I give you is the degree to which you enjoy me. So don't act like you're a stoic in the garden and say, I'm on the South Beach diet. Sorry, can't eat that. And he says, then you don't know anything about me. I'm a delight. I nourish your soul. Now in the center of the garden is the tree of life. And what we've got to realize about the tree of life is that the tree of life contains the highest potency of life. In other words, we're like, This is phenomenal stuff. And we're thinking, it can't get better than this. And the text goes, oh yeah, it can get a lot better than this. Creation's only at its starting point. Creation is still awaiting its consummation. Creation is still awaiting its glorification. Creation is still awaiting its final end. And the tree of life is set right in the garden to say, this is where the highest potency, ultra, super life, eternal life, not just quantity, quality, 
This is the gateway into not just having a union of heaven and earth on a mountain in the midst of a creation, but having the union of heaven and earth over all creation. Oh, this is incredible stuff. Then you go down to the first marriage and you're thinking, now, where is I was reading the text and I got to be honest with you. Nothing against my wife. But I'm like, why is this in the middle of this? Why all of a sudden in the middle of how he made man, how he put him in a place, he's immediately into relationships. He's immediately into meaningful relationships. Kind of shoots my theory down from movie going and book buying right there. You know what the answer is? God is a triune God. And in the Trinity, each person in the Trinity circles their good and their happiness around the glory and the happiness of the other. And he makes man in such a way he has to circle his happiness, his good, his glory around the happiness and the good and the glory of another. It's inherently human to be in community and to not circle the wagons around your own life. And so we get this incredible, it's not good that man should be alone. No, it's not good. Man by necessity is made to image God in relation to others. He can't do it alone. You can't image God alone. That's called selfishness. And that's what's going to happen. It's going to throw everything out of whack. Okay? So I want you to get the scene again. The whole scene is breathtaking. You have this mountain that stands into heaven. And in this mountain, heavenly waters flow down through a garden, then spring out into four headwaters that go to the rest of the earth to nourish, fructify, water the rest of the earth. One commentator, he was so caught in by, I mean, I could tell, I was reading him, he's just like, um, um, couldn't find the words. And I was relating to him, I'm like, how do you describe the words? And this is what he said, he says, the whole scene represents a downward dissemination of divine life upon all creation. In other words, a life that flows from the very throne of the living God. It's all God on his throne and life going out. This is walking on sunshine. Ah, this is the way it all began. This is thrilling stuff. And you know why you don't feel it? I mean, do you know the number one reason why God's love doesn't get into your soul? Do you know the number one reason why it doesn't take? What is it? What is it? You know you don't love God back loyally. I want you to look at verse 15. Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He's got a purpose. Now, I just want you to see it. What, that, that word, literally, keep it, that's, that word means guard. So you, you do better to put the word guard in there. It's the same word that's used in the Levitical order when they would stand guard over the holy things, not wanting God's holiness to break out in the people, but not wanting to let 
unholiness come into the holy things so that God withdraws his presence and his blessing from the people. They were there to guard the holy things. Well, this is a holy place. First thing Adam was told to do is guard it. Now, we know by the time a snake is talking with his wife, he hasn't done his job. It will take someone else to step on the head of the snake. Okay, now I want you to look at 15. I want you to look at 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat the day you eat, you die. Adam was to love God back loyally, and if he doesn't love God back loyally, he dies. He wrecks his relationship with God. He wrecks his relationship with paradise. He wrecks his relationship with his wife. He wrecks all humanity. So the people of Israel, they're reading this, right? Aren't they? They're on the plains. Moses comes down and they're hearing maybe faint things they'd heard from their ancestors that had been passed down. Remember, they've had no written word yet. So everything has gone on from that day down to them being in, in Exodus. There's been no written word. So now they get a written word. It starts describing all that happened in the beginning. And they know, my word, we've been sculpted into a people by God. He uses that same language with us that he did with Adam. He's been hovering over us with his immediate special presence. Cloud by day, fire by night. He's leading us to a pleasure ground. The promised land. Every Israelite knows that God is calling them to love him back loyally. And the honest Israelite shivers because he knows he doesn't. And the warmth of God's love at that moment, the moment you realize you don't love God back loyally the warmth of God's love blows away that's our problem alright we're at the dead end so here's where maybe it happens for us okay now this is the beginning of the Bible isn't so we know we got a little more advantage than they did we know that man there's it goes all the way to Revelation guys There's a lot more to be said, so this can't be the end of the story. We know this can't be the end of the story, and we know that this is the beginning of creation and the beginning of the Bible. I mean, we know there's chapter 3, of course, but we know there's 4, 5, and 6. I mean, Adam and Eve still breathe after they disloyally disobey God. And we know Israel, the moment they're even being brought out, being brought out of the Exodus, while they're on the banks, what are they doing? Oh, can we go back? They disloyally disobey God and don't love God. And then their whole history is just failure after failure after failure. So we know something's going on, but here's the dead end. We've got to realize we don't love God back loyally. So then here's the question. This begs the text. The question is this. How far will God's loyal love go with those who don't love him back loyally? That's the question of the text. And And can we say this? If you figure out how far it goes you might come alive to the love of God. Okay? Now, during the reign of Bloody Mary in England, 
the Protestant reformer. I didn't even know about this guy. The guy's name is Peter Martyr. What a middle name. Vermigli. All right? We'll call him Vermig. Vermig was on Queen Mary's most hunted, wanted list. She wanted him dead. She wanted everything that he represented and wiped out. So, to degrade him, to humiliate him, to torment him, she had people go into the grave of his beloved wife, gather up her bones, and take it to the trash dung heap of the town and sprinkle it all over the excrement and the waste of the whole town. Now, Peter had some very loyal friends. And what they did out of their love for Peter is they went over and they gathered up all those bones from the stench and from the filth, cleaned them off, and carried them back. And you know what they did? <laughs> I'll tell you, this, this is unbelievable. They take these bones and they dump them in St. Frideswide's grave which is the patron saint of Oxford. It's a she. And mixed her bones with her bones, with a saint's bones. A Catholic saint. Bloody Mary's saint. And so they're all mixed up. And so Bloody Mary cannot go in and take the bones of Peter's wife out for fear of messing with a saint's bones. How far, how far, brothers and sisters, will God's loyal love go for you? You know what the answer is? He will mingle the living bones of his own son with your dead bones. So they're indistinguishable. There's no separation between them. He can't tell the difference. And so what happens is that Jesus' love for God loyally, his righteousness, is mingled with you. So what happens is Jesus' death on the cross for sins is mingled with you. Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the incredible new life that he literally breathes a new breath of God is mingled with you. Now, if we can take all the images we've just seen, the tree of life, Eden, paradise, a newly sculpted people, supra highest potency life, everything we just saw in Genesis is now mixed up with you and now mixed up with me. This is phenomenal stuff. This is the last thing I want to say. Some of you, again, are, are building your understanding of Genesis around dates in chronological and sequential order, and it's keeping you from seeing the intent of this passage. The intent of this passage is this, that God will complete what he started. He loved his people, and he will love them to the end by taking his son's bones, living bones, and mixing them up with your dead bones, and you come alive. That's how much he loves you. So for those of you that 
are still on the outside looking in at this see that the story of the Bible doesn't end at Genesis 3. And it doesn't end if you follow it through Israel's failures. And it doesn't end with your failure. It doesn't end with your performance or whether you love God back loyally or not. It doesn't end there. It ends with the living bones of a Savior who did do all those things and now gets mingled up with the dead bones of sinners so that there's no distinguishing them. There's no separation of them. And if you see that, you trust Him, and you enter into a relationship with God. And then for those of us who are Christians, what we've got to see is we can't build our life, we can't build God's love on our loving Him back loyally. In other words, you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, you know, on a good day if I'm loving Him back loyally, I feel good, I feel like God loves me. But then what happens on a bad day when you're not loving God loyally? Or God is working in your heart and He wants to show you some deeper ways you need to trust Him. You're resistant because it means acknowledging your bad performance. And you acknowledge your bad performance, the warmth of His love blows away. Do you see how that works? And I want you to see how it works in this way. When you suffer, you get piled on twice. First you're suffering, which is bad enough. But now you pile on top of your suffering the sense that God's distant from you and He doesn't love you and He's not favorable towards you. Why? Because if you build God's love, your experience of God's love, if you build it around your performance, then you've linked love and blessing to good performance. You've linked pain and suffering to bad performance. And so if you're in pain and suffering, He's gone. Until you get your performance up. I don't know how you do it. I mean, sometimes you might feel good on a good day. And so maybe you get addicted to that feeling. Or whatever gave you that feeling so you can keep it. Or maybe it was a particular book you read and it showed you some personal disciplines and it was helpful in your relationship with God. And the real point of those disciplines and the real point of getting you in a relationship with God was actually coming in contact with God and growing in what He's done for you. But you get that confused because you're on a performance grid so you think the discipline did it. The, the book did it. The steps did it for me. So you're often running on the books and how-tos but then after a while it, it grows cold and it grows dusty and it just doesn't do it for you. And then finally, you know what happens when... When you do begin to build your life around a mingling, when God's love is for you is based on when you want to feel it, like when you get up in the morning and you want to let the reality that living bones of His Son has mingled with your dead bones, let that revive you. Let that get you up in the morning. When you get disheartened and you fail and you get rejected turn to the mingling turn to he loves me I'm mingled with his son let that revive you and you know what happens when that happens you actually now circle your happiness around other people That's the test whether you got the love of God. Whether the mingling is really at work in your heart is whether you're circling your happiness around other people's happiness, is whether you're really humbling yourself before other people, whether you, you take the shot on the chin and don't swing back. 
on everything inside you wants to. You know why we don't love other people? Because our love, God's love for us is based on our performance, and so our love for people is based on their performance. And so when they're performing and they're lovely, you love. But when they're not performing and they're unlovely, you don't love. And that's why we're critical, and that's why we're harsh, and that's why we feel superior, or that's why we feel inferior. Okay. So here's the creation story. What does it do? The creation story begins right at the beginning, telling you the most incredible love story there ever is. You've got the walking on sunshine. But we know that that walking on sunshine comes to a dead end because the, the, the prized creature was supposed to love God back loyally. Adam didn't. Israel didn't. We don't. And so we got a problem. How far will God's love go? He takes the living bones of his own son and mingles them with your dead bones. So you come alive. And that's the point of this text. You don't believe me? Read chapter 3. Right after their sin, there's someone coming whom all the world hangs on. Okay? Amen.